0: my great joy this morning to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look this morning at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, as we begin a sermon series uh, called A Defiant Christmas. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 down through verse 15, I'll ask you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Stand knowing that in the Scripture and in the Scripture alone, we know the true story of the world. I'm going to read all 15 verses of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say... He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, creator, sustainer, and redeemer, we come before you and your word this morning praying that you would shape us, shape us into those who are more faithful worshipers. Help us to see the reality of sin and the very real enemy who hates you, O Lord, and hates your people. And Lord, help us to cling, to cling to this first gospel promise. And Lord, may we be able to fend off the attacks of the evil one to the glory of your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. August Landmesser is known as the man who folded his arms. There is a picture of him... In The picture is one of the most iconic pictures of defiance in history. They put the picture on the screen right there, and you can kind of make out the man who is circled in the picture, and there he is with his arms folded, while everybody else in this sea of humanity has their arm extended. It's 1936. There's a commissioning for a warship in Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler is present and all of the people in this mass of humanity are doing the Nazi salute, except for one man. And that one man stands refusing to join everyone else in this crowd with his arms folded. A complete act of of defiance against the powers who were present. One lone man. The dictionary I keep on my desk at home defines the word defiant in this way. A disposition to challenge, to resist or fight. Full of boldness resisting and opposing force. Defiance can be good and bad. We often think of it only in terms of the bad. But this morning, as we begin thinking about the, the glory and wonder of what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does defiance have to do with Christmas. Well, what is Christmas but God's sovereign act of defiance against Satan, sin, and rebellion by the sending of his own son in the incarnation to take on human form, to give his life, to defeat the powers of evil and darkness, to win a victory for his people? You know, Christmas is explained in the Bible in, in terms of contrast, and, and that's what we're looking at in this series together. They are contrast of things that, that cannot coexist together ultimately. We think about the world today, we might think about words like darkness, fear, chaos, pride, and death. But the Bible tells us that Christmas brings life that defies death, light that defies darkness, joy that defies fear, peace that defies chaos, and love that defies pride. You see, these contrasts make clear that in this event of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, we're, we're seeing God. In the midst of a fallen world, gather a people who live in defiance to the wisdom of the world. We're looking at Genesis 3 today, and we can't look at this passage often enough because it's so foundational to our understanding of the entire scriptural story. The Bible starts out where you think it would start out, with God. And God creates by the simple word of His uh, power of His word. He creates the world, and He creates it out of nothing. He speaks it into existence. And the, the 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 focal point of the created order are these people whom He has created in His own image, Adam and Eve, image bearers of God. They are created to rule the world under His authority, under His dominion. And one of the foundational commands we see in the very beginning to this, this couple of image bearers at the beginning of the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, and it says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so this command starts out with the the goodness and provision of God. Uh, Did did you hear the word every? He's going to qualify it. He's going to give a parameter, but the the parameter is small. They they are to look out and see the experience of this garden and the message is that this god has given them this wealth of bounty and they are to enjoy it in his name but there is one tree that they are told not to partake of and we ask ourselves why that provision maybe that tree was poisonous maybe no 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 none of that there's nothing different about this tree in particular, the reason they aren't to partake of this tree is simple. God the Creator said not to. It's as simple as that. Don't look for any explanation beyond that. That tree represents an opportunity For worship and devotion by these created beings who are to reflect the image of God. And every time they enjoy the bounty of the created order, and yet they obey God in this one thing He says not to do, they worship Him and magnify Him. They honor His Word. They make much of Him. You see, the purpose of that tree was to be an, an object, a symbol that that signified they trusted God, they believed His Word. That's why Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said, Adam's church, altar, and pulpit, where he yielded obedience, recognized God's authority, and gave thanks, was that one tree. That tree was to proclaim the goodness of God. And so by not partaking of that tree and partaking of all others and recognizing that God had given them everything, and so God's word should be trusted, they had an opportunity to honor and obey God. There was a warning for disobedience. You shall surely die. Now when we make the transition from this section to chapter 3, chapter 3 immediately begins with this This new character in the story called the serpent, and it just feels sinister from the start. What I want us to see as we look through the first seven verses is this it teaches us how Satan attacks. You see, everything that we're going to see in this section about the way the serpent, the way the uh, the Bible lets us know this is the evil one, this is Satan, this is uh, the devil they're dealing with here who has, has come in the form of this serpent, that, that this one is one who is an adversary. And in fact, when we look in the New Testaments and we see, we see the temptations of Jesus, the way he attacks here in the beginning is the way he attacks Jesus in the New Testament. We need to understand how he works so we don't fall victim to his assaults, how Satan attacks. First of all, look with me at verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, very beginning, questioning what God has said, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now there is so much here, but, but notice a few things. It, it clarifies for us here in the very beginning that there is a characteristic that the serpent has. He's crafty. He, he is, uh, clever. Some translations say he is cunning. He is subtle in, in, in terms of subtle cunning, but then secondly, it makes clear from the very beginning, this is not an equal with God. It tells us he was made by God. He was more cunning than all of the other things that were made. He's not an equal with God. He's a creator, creation of God. God is the creator. But, but there's something we also notice with this, this word crafty. It, this is actually a Hebrew play on words that, that you can't really get across in the English. It really sounds exactly like the word translated naked. So, so in chapter 2, verse 25, when it says Adam and Eve were both naked and not ashamed, meaning they lived in innocence and vulnerability and they weren't hiding at all. They were naked and not ashamed. This word is um, the word "aram." If we were to transliterate it, A-R-O-M for naked, and the word for crafty is "aram," A-R-U-M. These are put together because it's telling us that this crafty, subtle enemy of God in his cunning is going to attack the innocent's of God's people. He's going to attack their integrity. They may be naked and not ashamed now, but pretty soon we're going to find them covering up. And that happens because of the crafty one, the the enemy of God, the, the clever one who comes in and challenges their integrity. But notice this. This is the beginning of spiritual warfare between the serpent, Satan, and God's image bearers. It's not the beginning of warfare between uh, the the serpent and God. Uh, Satan is Satan because he is fallen, a fallen angel. And and we have here, though, that that you're going to have this direction of his anger, that's going to be oriented toward God's people. This is spiritual warfare. But notice how he attacks, how he subtly attacks, how how his cunning works. The first thing is this. He appeals to self-pity. It's always the case. Feel sorry for yourself. You see, the way he communicates here the idea here is that, that, that God is harsh, God is restrictive, God is holding back on you. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, Why would God say that? Why, why would he act like that? The, the suggestion is clear that, that uh, yeah, if you think about it, you realize you're missing out. You shouldn't be missing out. See, the appeal is to self-pity. We live in an age in which we so often give ourselves permission for self-pity. But you need to understand that self-pity is something that ought to be rejected immediately with all the fierceness that you have every time it rears its head. It is a foundational carrot being dangled before you by the evil one. If he can get you to see the world through the lens of self-pity, you're moving in the direction of disobedience and rebellion. Now, think about how it doesn't make any sense. Here's the message. You can enjoy all of this except... This one tree. Why isn't the focus on the all of this? Look at how we're blessed. Look at how much we have. Why would God entrust with us this incredible bounty? But notice how self-pity works. It erases all of that. And you just see that one tree. I should have that too. I deserve that. And there's there's a parallel thing here. The self-pity is almost always paired with exaggeration. Exaggeration is a form of deceit. For, For those who are married in the room, you use this exaggerated form of deceit when you argue with your spouse. You always do that! Does anybody always do anything? No. Why do you say that? Because you want to exaggerate to say, you are wrong. Satan uses this exaggeration. He knows well what God has said, but he doesn't say, did God actually say you shouldn't eat of that one tree in the middle of the garden, but you can have everything else? He doesn't say that, does he? He says this, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that? You see exaggeration, this form of deceit, is used to build resentment. Somebody who's opened the door for self-pity and said, I deserve more than I'm getting, is now a perfect candidate to build resentment up in your heart. This exaggeration helps accomplish that. Because what Satan wants you to do is to fixate on the perceived negative. Notice the word perceived. By the way, if God says don't eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's not a negative, it's a positive. God defines what's positive and negative. But Satan wants you to look at that tree, he wants you to erase everything else out, and he wants you to fixate on this perceived negative, this this slight You're not getting what you deserve. He wants you always to focus on what you're lacking. And so he says, did God actually say you should need of any tree in the garden? You see, these are always paired together by the evil one because what he wants to build within you is a refusal to be grateful. If If you will refuse to be grateful, you have flung the door open for every self-destructive thing in the world to come into your life. Now, people are there. You can have it all, but this one tree, you have the choice to focus on blessings and this amazing bounty that you ought to be thankful for, or you have the choice, the opportunity to say, but I really want that one tree. That's exactly where Satan wants you to be. He's always going to work to build up resentment within you. The goal is to do two things. It's just to disturb you and flatter you at the same time. Disturb and flatter. What's the flattery here? The flattery here is that the idea that you can judge what God has said. You decide... If God has given you enough, you decide whether or not this idea that you shouldn't eat that tree is correct or not. So, so what do we want to say? we want to say, well, why not? Parents, you'll love this answer that God is basically giving here. Because I said so. Right? Now, you and I can't always be trusted. But God can. Because he said so. Because he's God. The question is, why has he said, uh, why, the question is not, why has he said, don't eat of that one tree? It's, why has he given you all this? That's the question. But it's not the one that Satan wants you to ask. It's, it's not the one that the serpent is suggesting here. The, the, the serpent is saying, I mean, why would he hold out on you this one small thing? It's not that big a deal anyway. You ought to be able to judge that that's not the right path. The serpent sowed small seeds of distrust by slightly twisting what God had said. Why is he denying you? You shouldn't appreciate the fact that he's denying you and that leads to temptation self-pity exaggeration that builds resentment and temptation if self-pity is feeling sorry for yourself thinking you deserve more than you're getting and exaggeration is building resentment to highlight the perceived negative temptation is an attack on the bad news there's going to be a parallel attack on the good news but the attack on the bad news is this It's not really bad. (laughs) It's not. That's what Satan is saying. It's not really bad. Your life will be better if you have that. Your life will be better if you do that. If you do what God has said not to do, you will be more fulfilled. You will be more satisfied. You will be more happy. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Now, you may be saying she's on the right track. She's correcting uh, uh, the serpent here with what God has actually said. But notice verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. What has she done? She's added to what God said. What did the serpent done? He added to what God had said. She, he, he has tempted her to think about things in terms of God is being too restrictive, and the very thing she does when she's supposedly repeating back what has happened is to su- suggest that God is more restrictive than He actually was. Do you see how the, the logic's been embraced? The self-pity has led to a sense of resentment, and even in the pushback... The temptation here is to say, God is restrictive. God is being too harsh. Here Eve is entering into the temptation. We all face temptation. Facing temptation is not sin, but entering into temptation is sin. Here she's beginning the path of entering into temptation. Seems that she's wondering... Why is it God has said this? And now she's begun negotiating what God has said. He led her down a road of adding to God's word, and the focus is on severity of God, and now she parrots back what resembles what Satan has done. That's adding to what God has said and making it seem more severe. The purpose of temptation is always to bring about disobedience in your life, But a good side benefit is that you become a legalist. Have you ever noticed that the people who are the most legalistic, who decide their own arbitrary standards of right and wrong, not what God has said, but what they have decided right and wrong, are, are sometimes often the most actually disobedient and rebellious to what God has actually said. Legalism can't produce righteousness because legalism feeds on your prideful desire for self-justification. If it feeds on self-centeredness, it can't produce humble godliness. See, the appeal here is that, that she says something that contradicts what God said, but she's also being more restrictive. Now that's where Satan wants you exactly. Satan loves for you to be absolutely, fundamentally committed to things that God has not said. No matter what they are. Because that means you're not focused on what God has said. Satan doesn't even mind morality. As long as the morality comes without the cross. What Satan hates is God. Jesus. People who are saved through the cross. But this temptation is always paired in the Bible with accusation. Satan himself is the, the adversary. He is the, the one who is the accuser of the brethren. The Bible tells us in Revelation 12.10. But accusation attacks the good news. Uh, this, this is the idea that God can't accept somebody like you. The purpose of the temptation to lead you to disobedience, right, is so you can come back with the accusation and say, How can God uh, want somebody who does what you've done? Attack the bad. It's not really bad. Go ahead. And then as soon as you do it, How can you think that you follow God? That's the way Satan works. That's what's going on. He isn't challenging you to help you, he's trying to box you in. There, there's a, a member here, I'll leave that person nameless because I didn't ask to use the story, but who told me a story one time that reminds me, every time I think about this and the way Satan works, I think about the story he told me. He, he said there was a guy at work and he said, you know, my dog is, is really, really sick and um, he really needs to be put down, but I just, I care about him so much, I just can't bring myself to do it. Would you, would you put down my dog for me? It really is a merciful thing to, to put him down. My friend was like, well, I mean, never done anything like that before. But man, if you're in need, I guess I'll do it. And so they go out and the somber ride. My friend takes the dog out, takes him over here behind a clearing and puts him down. And the guy runs out and said, why did you do that? what because you asked me to yeah but you did it so cold and they're driving home and the guy won't even hardly talk to him and my friend's thinking what just happened he begged me to put his dog down i put his dog down and now he's mad at me for putting his dog down yeah that's the way satan works that's that's the way it is you get in a situation and there's this temptation you know It'd be better to lie in this situation. It would help more people if you lied. Okay, well, I want to help people. So you tell a lie. And then as soon as you tell the lie, the, 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 the temptation is, how can you call yourself a Christian? Christians don't lie. That's the way Satan works. So you don't follow down his path. You push away the self-pity, you reject the exaggeration, you you, you shut down the temptation. What God has said is bad, is bad, and you stick only to His Word and to His accusations. You refuse to embrace them. But then there's one more thing here, contradiction. Finally, we work up to this. Notice he didn't start here. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman... You will not surely die. Now we get complete contradiction of what God said. A bare assertion that is simply this, God is a liar. It doesn't start out there. Did, did he really say that? He's holding out on you. You deserve more than you're getting. You know, if you can't eat of all the trees, why eat of any tree? He's holding out with you at, on you here, and, and it's, it won't be so bad if you, if you eat of that tree. And then as soon as you do it, you did that. But here, the issue here is he's working toward this. God is a liar. You will not surely die. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. As he say, God is holding out because he doesn't want you to have the privileges and blessings that he has. He knows that if you eat of that particular tree, you will be like him. Where did this come from? That's the very heart of the serpent's own rebellion against God. The Bible says the fall happened because he desired to be like God. And so now he's trying to lead us down that same path. It's a path that leads to destruction. But this notion that we can do anything to be like God is the lie of all lies. But notice how subtly he led them down this path. Here's the way Satan wants you to think about the world obedience is limiting. You, You heard the word FOMO, fear of missing out. That's the way he wants you to see the world. If you do what God says, you're going to miss out. Obedience is limiting. And doing what you want to do is freedom. That's where you'll really thrive. You'll never miss out. Just do what you want to do. God is trying to hold you back. He's trying to keep you reined in. He's trying to keep you limited. He's lying to you. So you will be less and he will be more. And look at verse 6. Now, we see that she's already given a listening ear to the serpent. She's listening to a creature and weighing what he says against what the creator has said. Not a wise path to be on, so she's listening. But notice what else. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave... Some do her husband who was with her and he ate. So notice, she listened, she saw, she took, she ate, she gave. Nobody wants to sin alone. Everybody, hey, come over here. This is actually good. That's the way sin works. What a devastating, swift path and and pattern she's been on. Her her goal here and his goal, Adam's goal, we, we see he was here all along doing nothing. No no sense of of honoring God or providing or protecting uh, his spouse. He's just doing nothing passively in this situation. But but the idea here is that they would be self-defined. And they would work towards self-fulfillment. How can anybody know what's best for me but me? That's the way we all tend to think sometimes. And when we do, we need to think, get behind me, Satan. First John 2.16 is basically a parallel of what we see here. It says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the tree was good for food, the desires of the eyes, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the pride of life, it says in First John 2.16, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, is not from the Father, but is from the world. This appeal to, to the desires of the flesh, sensuality, appeal to the desires of the eyes, aesthetics, what, what looks good to me, I'll define what's good. And the pride of life, the, the appeal to the intellect is a comprehensive challenge to what God has said. And basically the, the replacement is trust yourself. And in a fallen world, that means follow the path that Satan is on, the evil one. By the way, the verse after 1 John 2.16 is 1 John 2.17, and it says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The Apostle Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is a current warning for us. We are all challenged by the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And oh, the failure of Adam. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, they were were not only um, naked in the sense of not having the clothing that they needed, but they were naked in terms of righteousness. For they had sinned, the world was fallen. They had listened to the voice, the competing voice to God in the garden that had a lisp. Sin had turned them into his own image, rather than those who reflect the image of God. Do do you see that? Satan trades in shame. It's never liberating. And so here we have a people who were living under God without shame. Satan says, your life will be so much better if you do what you want to do, rather than what God says. And now their lives are marked by this shame. Shame wants to hide. Shame wants to pull back. They must cover themselves. And by the way, did they, did they get God-like? Hiding? Full of shame? Is that godlike? No, they lost innocence and they lost freedom, the very thing that was promised. And that's the way sin always works. Sin always has a pleasure for a time. But in the end, it gives the opposite of that pleasure. How Satan attacks, how the adversary works, how the father of lies does his business, how the accuser of the brethren works, he appeals to self-pity. Don't look at God. Don't look at what's out there. Feel sorry for yourself. You deserve better than you're getting. Exaggeration, fixate on the perceived negative and lack. Temptation. What God says is bad is not really bad, it's good. Accusation, the good can't include somebody like you who's done bad. The contradiction, obedience is limiting, and disobedience is where freedom is found. How do people live before God in a fallen world? That's what we see next in verses 8 through 13, the effects of sin. Look with me beginning in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We have Anthropomorphic language here, human characteristics projected on the God so we can feel the scene. Walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence, or literally the face of the Lord. God among the trees in the garden. So here's the first effect of sin. Avoiding God. Hiding from God. Concealing yourself because of shame. Far from the promise of being like God, now they are hiding from the very face of God. Now they are ashamed to even be in the presence of God. You see, what sin brings is always alienation. And by the way, alienation from God always leads to, to, to alienation within your own self. You don't even have a sense of who you are anymore. You see, when, when, when Satan comes in and he, he, he leads you down this path of rebellion, you don't just join him in accusing others, you accuse you. That was the goal all along. Somebody like you? And when you have that sort of alienation with God that leads to, to alienation with yourself, then you try to get your identity and looking around in others, and, and others aren't those to love and serve, they're, they're those who are competing with you. And you get alienated from people as well. Alienation, that's what he wants in your life. What is hell itself but ultimate and final alienation? Look with me beginning in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? By the way, before we go any further, note this. That question is a mercy. Where are you? He asked that question because he had no idea and he was trying to find him, right? No. It's more like a parent who catches a kid doing something and says, what are you doing? See, the the question is not asked because you don't know what they're doing. The goal of the question is confession. And the very question implies that there's an opportunity for reconciliation. In a little bit, God is going to talk to Satan. Guess what? No questions. Just judgment. No questions. Where are you? He says, verse 9. Verse 10. And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I, I hid myself. He admits here he's attempting to hide from God. Verse 11, he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, Like men have continued to do down through time, It's the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's her fault! Which is really a way of saying, It's your fault, God. You thought that helpmate thing was a good idea? Look how this played out. That's not the confession we were looking for here. But it's what we get. You see, avoiding God, alienation, hiding in shame always leads to excusing sin. Why is that? Because you're trying to grope for an identity. I'm not as bad as it seems like I am. You're not even convinced yourself. But you want to try to convince other people. There is no vulnerability on a pathway of sin and rebellion. There's only hiding. Excusing sin before God and others. It it, it always leads you, because if you're not justified by God's grace... And you don't live in that. What you try to do is self-justification. There's a difference between admitting sin and confessing it. Parents, (laughs) that's a key if you're going to shepherd your child's heart. There's a difference between admitting sin and confessing it. The goal is confession. You see when one is avoiding God, excusing sin, the inevitable ingratitude that they're living in leads to sort of groping sort of self-justification which never really works. You're never sure if you're good enough and you don't want other people to find out that you're not good enough. So what does that lead to? More shame, more alienation, more hiding. I'm spending too long here but this is so important. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, "What is this that you have done?" And the woman said, "The serpent deceived me and I ate." She cuts out the middleman. Satan's fault, which is really a way of saying it's God's fault. Do you see how messy sin is? Sin is complex. The idea that you and I have this little surfacey answer to sin where we can just sort of do a few things and check some boxes and we fixed all that is absurd. Sin is complex. It's multidimensional. Since the fall into sin, we know that, that sin is in me. I have an internal problem. I, I'm a sinner. It's a psychological problem of the way I see the world, but sin is also beside me and around me. There's a sociological dimension to sin living in a fallen world, but sin is also above me in terms of there's a, a supernatural aspect to the evil one himself in the entire demonic realm. Sin is multidimensional and complex. You and I don't have the resources to meet the problem of sin. What we need is grace. What only God can do. I love what George Whitfield, the famous evangelist, preacher of the Great Awakening said. He said, have you ever noticed how when you walk around and you encounter even animals in the animal kingdom, most often they growl at you, sneer at you, squawk at you. They're bothered by you. He said, even they know. Even they know. He said, they know that you have a quarrel with the Maker. Sin. Not something that you and I can put a little coating on. A whitewashed tomb still has dead men's bones. And that leads to the verses 14 and 15. Christmas. Life defies death. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, notice no questions, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life, not going to spend a lot of time here, but notice no questions, simply denunciation, simply condemnation, the the idea you'll go in your belly, it's not that he was walking around with legs and he suddenly lost his legs in this judgment. No, it was a sign that, that this being, the reason he was chosen to embody the evil one in the first place is, is that he's a sign of, uh, uh, of, of something that seems sinister and that the dust you shall eat at this time was a sign of judgment, of defeat. Uh, we, we still use it that way. Man, if I beat you, I left you in the dust. That's what's going on here. Martin Luther says of verse 13, These words are not spoken by God for the devil's sake. God does not regard him even worthy of condemnation. He says these words were spoken for God's image bearers, that they would hear the curse on the evil one. You see, that's the key here. This is the blessing of a curse. God comes in and he, He's dealing with the problem of sin and he, he declares the defeat of this serpent in the very beginning and in His cursing Him, He is beginning what will lead to the blessing of His people. There's a battle to be fought. And not only is the, the, there's the blessing of a curse as His people hear what's going on here, there's the kindness of warfare. There's a battle to be fought. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity... The word simply means one party is an enemy to another. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between you, your offspring, and her offspring, her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, do you see what's going on here? This, this enmity between you and the woman? Satan came, and he, he attacked the woman. He, he led her down a path of sin and rebellion, and, and also Adam. Adam. But here we see that God comes in, and he says, okay, God's into these sort of reversals all the time with the evil one. Right? The cross, the stopping this way, ending this, marking him out as being cursed by God, dying on a cross. What does it end in? in resurrection? Paul tells us in Colossians that he makes a public spectacle of the evil one by the resurrection. Oh, you thought this was the end? This is the beginning for my people. And here he comes and he says, okay, you attack the woman, my image bearer, I'm going to raise up a woman who's going to give birth to a baby that's going to end you. That's the message. The kindness of warfare. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't give us something to do. He says, "I will go to war for you. I will defeat the enemy for you." When he talks in here a little bit to the, the man and the woman, he, he, he talks about things that will be more difficult because of the fall into sin, but he doesn't directly curse them, for he is making a way for them by one who comes and defeats the evil one. You see, you see the unlikely victory of life-defeating death here. He says, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to raise up a baby. God sought to abuse the first woman, and God brings salvation through a woman who gives birth to the Messiah, the Savior, and He reverses the reality of what uh, uh, Satan thought he had done. We sing about this at Christmas. Isaac Watts, joy to the world. We sing about this reversal. Uh, Listen to this, no more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. He's turning things back right side up in this fallen world. God's act of defiance and reclaiming a people for the glory of His name, the kindness of His warfare against the evil one, the deliverance of His people by a champion that is raised up for them. A woman will give birth to one. One who defeats the evil one who led humanity into sin in the first place. By the way, the rest of the Bible tells this story. It's just footnotes after this. It's just the explanation of how God keeps this line preserved until this one who was born. And this one who was born is this promised one. And all of the ragings and even the death at that time as Herod says, kill these children to stop this, it will not stop it. There is the seed of the serpent and there is the seed of the woman and that's the way this thing unfolds the entire way. William Van Gimeren, a New Testament scholar, says this, in his confounding defiance of what we deserve, God Himself undertakes to save His people. He does this in Jesus Christ, the second Adam. You see, this is the answer to Satan's attacks. Self-pity, exaggeration, temptation, accusation, contradiction. We've got to learn how to... How to thwart those things and and not play with them and dabble with them and yeah maybe there's a point and allow ourselves to self-pity so we start exaggerating fixating on what we think that we uh, deserve that we don't have and and give way to temptation give ourselves over to it say the bad's not really that bad and and then the accusation comes and we say oh how can I do something like this and be led down the road where we too are willing to just directly contradict God we've got to treat it like what it is. it what it is. If you go to the grocery store today and you are checking out and you glance over and you see the National Enquirer, anybody know what that is? I have all these fanciful stories and just, you know, John has three heads and the government's hiding it from us. And if you see the National Enquirer, do not make an appointment with me ask me what I think about any story in the National Enquirer if you're in that bad of shape I can't help you it's so obviously something that ought to be just mocked and ridiculed that's how we should treat the temptations of the evil one are you kidding me I, I should fixate on what I perceive as a lie do you know what God has done for me God the Son came out of heaven and took on human flesh and was crucified. And you thought, yeah, we've got Him now. And then He mocked you in the resurrection. You come in convincing me I'm a sinner who don't deserve grace. Tell me something I don't know. That's why I've got it and why it's called grace. We've got to fight defiance against the wisdom of the world and the logic of the world. Replaying what he has done for us in this first gospel promise, and we know how it's unfolded. Replaying that in our heart, minds, thoughts, and affections constantly. Pounding it in our head. Life defies death. How do you know that? Well, let me tell you about a baby that was born to a woman who was the promised Messiah of old, whom they crucified and was dead and buried. But he's raised again, and he is raising a people to be with him forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your perfect and precious word. I thank you for the gospel. The very beginning, the fall into sin... The first thing you do is declare your commitment to go to war for your people, to defeat the evil one, to pay the penalty that we deserve. And you promise to be with your people forever. Oh, Lord, you are God with us. The gospel promise in the beginning, your preservation of the line down through the ages, Christ coming, the word made flesh and dwelling among us. And one day to be in your presence forever and ever where there is no more sin, there is no more death, there is no more heartache. Oh, God, with us. May that shape everything we think and all that we do. And may we know that the most important thing that we can know is that in Christ, life defies death now and forever. Help us to believe it in Christ's name. Amen.